Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is Alistair Owen. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Stuart. Lovely to be back. And we're, we're talking middle of November here, and a, and a month ago you were, you were you were on my on my friend's podcast, Writers on Film, with John Bleasdale. That's right. Uh, that was great. Uh, that was a very long conversation. Um, we sort of focused on Bruce Robinson, because um, obviously smoking in bed, of the four books I've done so far, is the is the best known one um but we were able to arrange around um my second book story and character which is another anthology of interviews uh, with british screenwriters the, the uh, interview book with christopher hampton playwright and screenwriter um the art of screen adaptation of course uh, and the, the the interview book that i'm working on now for penguin which is uh, interviews with the novelist and um screenwriter and playwright William Boyd, which uh, I've just literally um, this past couple of weeks finished a, a first draft of, and I'm just working on a quick polish before sending it to uh, Will, uh, hopefully later this month. So that's exciting, and that comes out uh, a year, a year today, a year this month. Wow! So Christmas 2023. Absolutely, and that book has been in my life a long time. I first pitched it to Will. Um, I mean, it was five, six years, it's got to be. Um, and then there was a, uh, we were talking about it and there was a lag because I was still doing the screen adaptation book. And then um, I've got all the dates and when I signed the contract and when we had our kind of contract signature lunch in Sloan Square. And and then there was another delay because of COVID. I was like, we, you know, I'm used to doing my interview books face to face. And I didn't relish the notion of doing it via Zoom. But then of course, COVID kept on going and lockdowns kept, coming in and going out and coming in again. So eventually we just had to start. And actually we did the whole book, almost the whole book by Zoom. Um, and it, funnily enough, because I already knew Will fairly well, it, it didn't, I didn't feel it impacted. We, it was a good rapport, but it was nice to be able to do the final interview actually on his most recent novel, The Romantic, to do that interview face to face at his house in Chelsea, where I had first interviewed him 20 years ago-ish for um, for my anthology story and character in fact bizarrely the manuscript for his latest novel the romantic landed in my inbox my email inbox exactly 21 years to the day since i had first interviewed him for story and character which was a very strange wow. coincidence i mean having known someone that long and then writing a book about them 
I'm with them, should I say? What? What we what was some what were some of the surprises for you? You know, because you can you, you can perceive someone and having of having certain things, but obviously there has to be revelations, or else what's the there is maybe no point. But so what we what were we able to glean about about William that you didn't you didn't know going into the book? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's probably just detail because when I interviewed him previously for story and character, we were just focusing on his screenwriting career and it was, it was right. one of 12 chapters in the book. So it was about what, 20, 20, 15, 20 pages maybe. Um, and we focused on everything he'd done screen wise up to that point, which was what, 2002, 2003. Obviously this book is, is about all of his work to date. So that's 17 novels, um, um, four or five short story collections, TV films, um, TV series rather, um, feature films. So it was the amount of detail, really. Um, I think I'm right in saying that it's the only interview book with a best-selling British novelist. I can't think of another one. Um, and in, in, that in and of itself in, interests me um, because um, in each case the book I've done has been a slightly, I feel, broken new ground. Uh, I don't think there was an interview book quite like Smoking in Bed. There were plenty of interview books with people like Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese and so forth. But something that sort of seemed so, because of because Bruce is very unguarded and, and unfiltered, uh, it, it had a sort of, it felt like it was some, some slightly different from the, from the normal run. No one had done a book of interviews with British screenwriters before, an anthology before I did it. Um, the Christopher Hampton book is a kind of cross between a screenwriting book and a playwriting book, which I was very proud of because although I've worked on the fringes of the theatre industry for years, I'm not actually a theatre person. I'm a film and TV fan. Yeah. Um, so I was really thrilled that I managed to kind of corral my material and ask questions of this ferociously intellectual man <laughs> that, you know, he wasn't looking at me like I was an idiot. Um, no one had done an anthology of interviews about screen adaptation until I did that. So that was another first and that's lovely. And the Boyd book, as I say, I don't think there's another book of interviews with a best-selling British novelist. And so the, um, the stuff that I have found most interesting is, is, you know, we've dug deep into his novels and how he goes about that and his writing routine and how he approaches fiction as a writer. And as usual with, you know, whether it's fiction or screenwriting as a practitioner, you know, I have written a, a novel which is on Kindle. I have written scripts, albeit <clears throat> that I'm, I haven't been produced. But nonetheless, I'm able to ask questions that a you know a practitioner would ask, and therefore the answers interest me as a practitioner, and oh. they interest me for two reasons. They interest me where they are similar to me. You know, like me, he 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 tends to get going later in the day. A lot of writers write early in the day and oh. then have the afternoons to do whatever with. I've he, he seems to get going slower like I do. And then there are also, it's interesting when the writer you're interviewing does things radically different than you do. And I found that a lot with the, with the screen adaptation book, I was genuinely surprised at how many of the writers really did not like voiceover. You know, I never use it. I only ever use it if I have to, I think it's, <clears throat> it's a cop out. And I love voiceover. I mean, I really do. And a couple of the writers also did Lucinda Cox. And I think was particularly fond of it. Um, many of my favourite movies have, have voiceover, I think, used well. It's a fantastic tool in the box. So I was genuinely surprised that so mm. many of them are like, no, it's terrible, would would never. Yeah, Scorsese do seems to have done quite well with voiceover. So, so yeah, I, I think it's it's the level of detail was was it interesting. Um, the the um, the sort of overview of someone of someone of a best selling novelist's craft um, 
was was very interesting. Um, and I'm sure if I were to interview in a similar book on another novelist, you know, an Ian McEwan or a Kazuo Ishiguro, it would be a completely different kettle of fish. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I've sort of, I've, it, it, it sort of happened that I've ended up doing three books about individuals uh, buffered by two books of anthology. So I've got an individual anthology individual anthology individual and that will be my five books which is it feels like a nice a nice number um and um uh, now i can get back to my uh, for a while anyway i can get back to prose fiction and screenwriting um which after a, a long period of not uh doing very much of um as i was doing the william boyd book and i was doing my novella the vetting officer um and screenwriting had sort of taken a, a bit of a back seat, um, not least because, you know, if you write a novella and you put it on Kindle, then, you know, it has to please, ultimately, it only has to please yourself. Hmm. Um, I obviously, I did show it to people and the responses were positive, including William Boyd, which was uh, lovely. Um, he offered to read it. I didn't ask him. Yes. Uh, and he was very, um, very generous about it, which gave me a nice quote to uh, to put on the site and on my website. Um, but uh, s- screenwriting is, you know, as you know, it's a, it's a trickier proposition and you can spend an awful lot of time doing an awful lot of work that never gets read or seen. Um, so I've now found a balance whereby I'm, you know, I'm doing it, I'm enjoying it, but I'm doing other stuff as well. And I think that's, uh, I mean, I don't know how it works for other screenwriters, but I think um, having more than one, more than the screenwriting string to your bow, for me, it keeps me keeps me sane because it's it's you know you keep plugging away with screenwriting and you have to, um, you've, you know, um, perseverance is a is a big part of making it as a screenwriter. But uh, that's not to say that at times it doesn't become very dispiriting as you. No, know. no, no. Well, just I, I, after what you were saying earlier, it begs the question um, about about routines and stuff. In when you when you've got the ideal time set aside for your for your screenwriting. And you said, obviously, later to start in the day is one of your things. I mean, that echoes. I remember, I remember uh, an interview with Michael Arndt who said he drinks coffee, reads the paper, drinks coffee, reads the paper, then he procrastinates till he hates himself. And that was one of the best bits of advice I'd ever heard as far as writing screenplays goes. Um, that sounds awfully familiar to me. It doesn't need to be such a quotable anecdote, but in terms of your own, in terms of your own habit, what's, what's the key, a key part of your working day as far as, as, far as routine goes, if you're, if you're starting a screenplay? If I'm starting a screenplay, um, well, I've recently started with what I'm writing at the moment. I've written the first episode of a spec TV series. Um, so it's one hour, 60 mm. pages. I've never written in that format before, which is part of the pleasure discovering that format. Um, and I, with this, I've always previously written straight into final draft. Um, with this one, I adopted something I did when I wrote the novel, which is I wrote the first draft in longhand, which is something that Christopher Hampton does, and I think maybe something that William Boyd does as well, even with screenplays. And actually liberating myself from the um, from the laptop from the final draft program was was actually rather lovely. It gives you, you know, freedom to just mess around, really. So I suppose. I and this week I've been I've been sort of not getting out of bed and doing my William Boyd revisions ch- chapter or two in bed for a couple of hours and then I'll get up and I'll have a bath and I'll get a cup of tea um, and then when I've you know messed about a bit I'll then start on the writing now if I weren't doing the Boyd book then my morning would be longhand 
I suspect, and my afternoon would then be typing up the scene. Um, I find that if I have something to type into Final Draft, i.e. I'm not looking at a blank Final Draft page, I know that then I'm more productive than if, if I am looking at a blank Final Draft page. And something about not sitting upright at a laptop. You know, I have a day job and I sit upright at a PC three days a week. So there's something about just sort of staying in bed or lying on the sofa with a with a notepad that I find very... Um, but if I'm if I'm writing and I haven't got going by about midday, then I'm I'm probably a bit behind myself. I I, I usually do about an hour and then I break for lunch. It's tempting these days when there's so much great stuff on iPlayer. I've just started watching series two of The Capture, for instance, which is absolutely fantastic so far. The first two episodes are dynamite. Um, so that's a terrible temptation as well. But I think to myself, if I can do an hour before one, and I can, then I can have an hour, and I can get back to it at two and do another sort of two or three. Then I'm. But often it spills into the evening, and if I'm if I'm on it, then that's fine. You really feel like you've done something. Indeed. Five, six or seven o'clock when it's time to break again, have dinner and watch The Crown. Well, look, we've regrouped to um, to talk about three films that have impacted everything in my adult life which is a kind of nice way of sort of charting how film has made us film lovers. It's not necessarily about what's the coolest films you've ever seen. It's more about what were the films in your formative years or even pre-formative years that sort of maybe made you fall in love with the form. Um, or, or even just a fond memory of watching it with your granddad. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about, you know, seismic shifts in the way you see popular culture. It could just be a nice memory of the family. Um, and I think that's where, you know, sort of music and, and, and film have that lovely ability of, of almost instantly becoming our personal biography because you can, you can kind of chart, for better or for worse, where, where songs fit in with your life. It doesn't mean that your life is chronological with when those films and music were released, just that when you discover them. Can, and then they can feel like chapters in your life because there, the, there was before you knew them and there's the after you knew them. And they're always, they're, 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 if they have an impact, they're slightly different. Absolutely. Now we're going to do your three. It follows my normal format of a five-minute limit, so we will be move, we will be working to an alarm. Um, yes. And that is for those people joining us for the first time. The alarm will sound like this. Okay. Does that all seem clear to you, Alistair? Yes, absolutely. Right then. Without further ado, let's start with your first five minutes on. Dead Poets Society, where does that fit into having impact on your life? Well, Dead Poets Society, <clears throat> I mean, that's kind of where everything starts for me. Um, I was already a, a movie watcher, thanks to my dad, um, who would show me Ealing comedies and British war movies on a Sunday afternoon. And I suppose I was already familiar probably with the, with the bigger pan and scan epics like Lawrence of Arabia. Um Cut and pan and scan, which is this was in the pre-widescreen video <laughs> days. Um, but it, it wasn't something that had overtaken my life. If, if I was, if I had an art form, as it were, an artistic interest, it was probably reading at that point novels, mm. usually lighter novels like Woodhouse and War. Um, and then one day, in my nineteen eighty-nine, um, my in autumn nineteen eighty-nine, my folks said one evening we're going to go and see this film dead poet society um now i had sort of i was going through a phase of i never really wanted to do anything or leave the house if i didn't have to um and especially not with my parents um 
And I was like, why? What's it? What? What's this all about? Why are we doing this? Um, and it's it's everyone. I, I assume they had read some reviews. They thought it was a film they would like. They they thought I would like it, and then they just sort of insisted. So off we went <laughs> to the uh, the showcase in Peterborough. Um, <clears throat> and it really was transformative because I was at that point um, a shy, arty boy at an all boys school who was starting to get into um, drama, which I would do in the in the autumn. And um, they were productions in association with the with the girls' school in in the same town. Mm. Um, and here I was watching a film about shy, arty boys at an all boys school, <laughs> albeit in America rather than the UK, but. Clearly, these kind of um, posh American prep schools are patterned after their uh, British counterparts. So I didn't feel like I was watching something uh, completely outside my own experience. Um, they're all boarders uh, at that school. I was a day boy, but we did have boarding houses. So, you know, um, and I think I just it was the personal connection. It was possibly the first time I'd ever watched a movie, which felt like it had been made specifically for me. And, and that, that is a feeling that never loses its joy. If you see a movie like that, that speaks to you or read a book like that, that speaks to you. Um, I think it was probably the first time I really noticed. Did I notice in the cinema or did I then think about it and look it up afterwards? I don't know, but it's the first film where I remember noticing the director, Peter Weir. Okay. Who, became and remains one of my favorite film directors i think his his disappearance from the movie scene uh in the last 12 years uh, since he made the way back is very very sad because i think he's one of the greats the true mm. cinema greats um and i think it may have been the first time i noticed the notion of a screenwriter the written by credit written by tom shulman um uh, and I still would count it as one of the great original screenplays. Um, it feels authored. It feels like that's his voice. Um, it's interesting to see. So I then, as a result of this movie, I suddenly realised, wow, this movie thing is really quite something. And <laughs> I sort of that solidified the the Ealing comedies and the war films and Lawrence of Arabia. And I then sort of, I became a hoover for movies. Um, I was reading Halliwell's Film Guide, you know, whenever I was in the bath, I would read Halliwell's Film Guide. I absorbed ridiculous amounts of facts, some of which I can still quote, even for films I've never seen. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like year of release and studio and for uh, for I guess for the for the for the for the younger listener, the Halliwell's film guide is basically IMDb, wasn't it? As much as you could call it, it was. It absolutely was a very good description. It was. It was. um, It was pre-internet, almost prehistoric IMDb. It was a book that was updated every couple of years. It was originally written by this really fuddy-duddy film critic called Leslie Halliwell, Mm. um, some of whose reviews of films that are regarded as great classics of cinema are, they're just hilarious because basically anything that was made after about 1955, he was deeply suspicious of. (laughs) Um, But it was, it had, you know, who the director and the writer and the cinematographer and the designer and the editor and all kinds of other ancillary details. And I was just hoovering this stuff up. And I started hoovering up movies as well. Um, any movie I could watch, movies on TV were so much more of a thing then because you didn't have streaming, you didn't have cable, you didn't have DVDs, and and even video rental wasn't such a thing in 1989, 90. No, 1990 um, was when uh, B Sky B was launched. So yeah, the the multi channel option was 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 still a year away. Absolutely. I mean, I I still have very fond memories of of Christmases that going through the the. Do you want to finish that thought? Our five minutes are up, but do you want to finish that thought? I'll finish that thought. Um, going through the <laughs> uh, going through the Christmas Radio Times and circling in the film section, circling the films I was going to watch, and uh, there were several Christmases between the ages of about well, I was fourteen in nineteen eighty nine, eighteen when I went to nineteen when I went to university. So there were several years there, several Christmases where I would watch a movie in the morning, a movie in the afternoon, a movie with my parents early evening, and then a late night movie. I was watching four movies a day Blimey. over those Christmas period, and I was just hoovering up movies. And that was because Dead Poets Society basically turned me on to movies, and you know I've never been turned off. What a powerful drug that film was. Um, well, then moving moving on to your second choice, which is 1986's Defense of the Realm. Defense of the Realm, um, I, I think, should be a lot better known than it is. Um, it's starting to get a bit of um, traction because it, they show it quite regularly on Talking Picks TV. There's a there's a um, a network DVD special edition of it. I think. Um, it's. I would credit it with. Uh, it's a film that I think helped shape my political outlook. It's certainly a film that has influenced my writing, um, both prose fiction and screenplays. Um, In what way? Politics. Uh, well, um, so, Defense of the Realm, uh, as say, 1986. It was part of a small flowering of um, politically engaged um, movies during the Thatcher era. In the same way that. Um, the sort of paranoia and unrest of the Nixon era in America produced um, films like The Parallax Fuel, The President's Men, The Conversation, Three Days of the Condor. Mm. So the um, the slightly oppressive nature of um, of Thatcherism in the 80s produced um, Edge of Darkness on TV, uh, A Very British Coup on TV, yeah, yeah. Uh, Defence of the Realm, and also a very good and quite little-known um, uh, Michael Caine film called The Whistleblower. Um but, which is also 1986. Um, and Defense of the Realm, it, well, 
apart from anything else, it is a brilliantly written and directed um, film. It's written by Martin Stellman, directed by David Drury, both clearly influenced by um, William Goldman and Alan Pakula's work on particularly All the President's Men. I, for a period, I was interested in being a journalist. It's a great journalism film. It's an investigative journalist film. Um, Gabriel Byrne, one of his first big roles, who I've always been a huge fan of, uh, leading a fantastic British cast, um, investigating government malfeasance and uh, and and falling foul of um, of the security services. Um, and when I wrote my novella, The Vetting Officer, which is set in the intelligence world, um, although I had literary antecedents behind that, John, John Le Carre on the one hand, Julian Barnes's sense of an ending on the other, I also had this um, this small group of what I would call British political thrillers of the mid-80s in my head, this sense of paranoia, fighting against the state, lone man and trying to do the right thing. Um, they're all out to get you. Uh, the state are out for themselves, not to help you. Um, and I think because I saw that again during that period of just hoovering up movies, and you're very impressionable at that age, and that yeah. was when I first, you know, achieved a political consciousness. I've always been centre to left. Um and and so it kind of sits there as something that first a movie about politics, albeit through a uh, investigative journalist, short generic sort of thriller framework, um, chimed with things I was thinking and feeling as someone growing up during the Thatcher era. Um, and since, as I've become an enormous fan of, uh, of John Le Carre um, and and wanting to write prose fiction, it was it was just there, um, very much where in my you, mind where, when was I was this, writing that book. Was this a discovery through your kind of? hoovering up the tv schedules of films or is this a vhs you hired absolutely or? i definitely i definitely would have seen it um so dead poet society was probably what i would say the first proper grown-up film i saw yeah and then as i say i was just hoovering up everything good bad and indifferent um and this was obviously very very good i remember having it on um betamax my my dad had a betamax video recorder i remember recording it on betamax i remember recording it again on vhs i was thrilled when i was able to finally get it on an american region one dvd i then got the network dvd uh, i should really get it on blu-ray if i'm gonna you know continue this theme <laughs> but no I, I i definitely saw it in that period where i was just watching everything uh and it is a very stylish british thriller uh, and it should be regarded as a classic mm. It is it is brilliantly made. Um, it is utterly engaging. Um, it is very of its time in some senses. A, a, a very eighties um, electronic score, which I think works works great in context. Um, I, I don't think Gabriel Byrne has ever been better. Um, so I, I'm. It's nice to see that it's getting shown now, thanks to Talking Picks TV, and I hope that people discover it and discover. What a fantastic movie it is, because there was a period during the Blair years when it, it started to feel a bit like a period piece. Um, and bizarrely and possibly sadly, uh, now we're looking at a much more oppressive police presence in this country uh, yeah. and an oppressive, more oppressive government. Suddenly, Defence of the Realm is not feeling like a period piece anymore. Suddenly, Defence of the Realm, with its story of um, journalists being harassed for doing their job and press barons colluding with the government, feels pretty much bang up to date, actually. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we we literally last week the uh, the LBC journalist reporting on the stop the oil getting arrested and putting the cell exactly, exactly. Right. Your final selection, interestingly, was talked about uh, when um, the actor, Dom, actor and director Dominic Brunt did five films that impacted on his life. This was his final choice, um, but obviously you're coming at this film from a different point of view, and I'll. 
his his was very much like when he saw this, he 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 realized Anthony Hopkins could play Hannibal Lecter and could play this def- different um butler. And the idea goes, oh, that's acting then. It kind of the penny dropped for him what acting was through this film. But uh for you, the remains of the day, what what is it for you? How did you discover this film? Well, I would have seen this at the cinema in nineteen ninety-three. Mm-hmm. I remember, I think, seeing it twice. I did go to see it again um, when I was, I think I may have seen it near my parents' place um, in Peterborough. And then I may have seen it again when I was at university in Bristol. Yeah. It made a very big impact on me straight away. I read the novel after seeing the film. Um, I was, I had movies had completely taken over from novels for me. I just stopped reading much to my mum's chagrin. She was an English teacher. Um, and I started reading novels again at, at university um, and uh, often novels that films had been based on. Um, and I love, I loved the Ishiguro novel. I, I do then I, I do now. Um, and I actually wrote my university dissertation um, for uh, my BA, which was in drama uh, on, it was rather pretentiously called issues of adaptation in the remains of the day. And it was a pretty close study of the um, changes that have been made in order to bring Ishiguro's novel to the screen. Mm. So it sort of brought together the literary side of my um, life, which had been a bit dormant, and the um, film side that I was very passionate about. But also I think it solidified for me that there's a particular kind of British film that speaks to me particularly deeply, Um, probably period, um, possibly for a highly likely to be a literary adaptation. Um, I connect with British cinema much more strongly than any other any other kind of cinema. I watch plenty of American stuff. I've never been great at world cinema. I like French cinema. I admire the fact they've retained a very a thriving indigenous film industry. Um, and I wish we had something that was quite as thriving to match it. But um, so I suppose it. I'd always been into those kind of period movies. Uh, a Month in the Country, the J.L. Carr adaptation with... Um, Colin Firth and Kenneth Branagh was one of my favourite um, movies, which I first saw on video. Um, more recently, Sense of an Ending from Julian Barnes's novel, um, right up through to The Dig, which premiered on Netflix. I love those kind of period pieces about often buttoned up middle-aged English men um, at crisis points in their lives. And, and The Remains of the Day is that kind of the quintessential version of that. Um, and indeed, you can track that right through to Living uh, with Bill Nye, which I saw on Friday, uh, which, of course, is adapted by Kazuo Ishiguro from <laughs> the Kurosawa film Akiru um, and is uh, it's like a lost British film from the 1950s. Is it really? Very European and international feel. I mean, it, it's it's a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. And I don't say that very often, as is, I believe, The Remains of the Day. Um, I think The Remains of the Day is a... a a shining example of how you can take a book, be true to the spirit of it, uh, and yet have to make adaptation choices, which will produce a film that is that that honours the book, but uh, stands up as its own unique work of art. There are big differences between the novel of Remains of the Day and the film, which you might not necessarily pick up on if you either A, hadn't read both, read the book and watched the film in tandem, mm or be written a dissertation on it, or C, were, you know, written a book of interviews about screen adaptation. And actually, I remember clearly the moment when I decided I was going to say yes to do the book of interviews with on screen adaptation. I was um, sitting in the garden of one of the locations, um, Durham Hall, which is on the sort of intersection of the M4 and the M5 yeah. um, in the southwest. 
And I was sitting there thinking, am I going to do this book? And I was sitting there in one of the locations they'd used to shoot Remains of the Day. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this book. I, I wrote my what, dissertation what, on it. What, based, on, based on that level of study you've done in it, and also having done a book about adaptation, um, what, what particular decision did they take between the book and the film that was... That was particularly well, sort of brilliant for the form, this, as it were. I'll try, yeah, I'll try and do this very succinctly. There's two things. One is they, um, other than occasional letters being exchanged between Mr. Stevens and Miss Kenton, they have taken the first person narration out completely. Okay. Now, given that Mr. Stevens is a very kind of buttoned up character, that means that what you glean about him, you have to glean from the performances and the dialogue. You're not getting privileged access to his head. Ah. And that makes an enormous difference. Um the other thing, which is subtler, and you wouldn't know unless you'd read the book, is there is a there is a subplot in the book, which is to do with um, Mr. Stevens feeling that he is letting his new American employer down. Uh, incidentally, the American employer in the in the film is the same American that came to Lord Darlington's conference, beautifully played by Christopher Reeve, um, and a very sensible adaptation choice because in the book it's two different americans the american that attends the conference and the american that buys the house are two different characters can i finish that Karen, you thought, so in please the book, do. he's got this new american employer who's very informally american and seems to want to kind of banter with mr stevens in a way that mr stevens is absolutely not used to as a professional english butler and he, he's he's no good at it he just can't do it and he feels that as a professional failing and also a personal failing to some degree and he returns to this as he encounters people and is awkward with people at various points on his journey he comes back to this you know this bantering it seems to be something that's kind of very important in terms of people getting on with each other and and so the film as i'm sure you'll remember ends with this you know it's heartbreaking it's brief encounter in 1993 the bus the bus um carries miss kenton away and Mr. Stephen goes back to Darlington Hall and you have the final scene of the bird trapped in the in the room and he lets it out. But then he, the camera pulls away and he is trapped inside the room, inside the house, inside this this life. Um, mm. And it's actually a very downbeat ending. And, and interestingly, and this is unusual in movies, it's a more downbeat ending than the book. Because in the book, oh, it, it wow. ends with him. And I'm spoiler, spoilers, uh, if you haven't read it, stop now, read the book and come back. Um He's sitting on the pier, which is a scene that um, is is in the film in a different form. He's sitting on the pier and he has a conversation with a, a chap who was also a butler in a much smaller house nearby. In fact, they shot this scene, a version of it. It's on the deleted scenes of the DVD. Do watch it. Watch it with and without James Ivory's commentary because it's absolutely fascinating. Anyway, um, and... The, the book ends with this with this scene of him sitting on the pier. He's had this conversation with this other butler. He's he's basically crying, but because it's narrated by Mr. Stevens, he doesn't tell you he's crying. You learn he's crying because the guy he's talking to has, hands him a handkerchief and says, oh, you know, um, you're all right, chap. You know, here's, here's a handkerchief. And so it's immensely moving in this very quiet, understated way. And after the, the guy is gone and he's, you know, the lights have been turned on and, and people are happy about the lights being turned on on the pier and he hears people bantering. Um, and there's a line, it's something like, maybe in bantering lies the key to human warmth. And he, he determines that his one task he sets himself when he goes back to Darlington Hall and he's going to be, get better at bantering. He's, he thinks it's going to be good for him and good for his employer. And it might be this tiniest shred of an upbeat ending at the end of this realization that he's, you know, wasted large chunks of his life. But nonetheless, there is at least a sliver of positivity there. It's extremely moving. 
Um, and it's radically different from the ending of the of the film. And I, you, you do one mm. thing, you take one subplot out of a novel and you end up in a completely different place in terms of the ending, in terms of the tone, in terms of the character. And I find that fascinating. And they're both great works of art, in my opinion. Indeed. Well, look, uh, that's three films that impacted everything in your adult life. Uh, Dead Poets Society, Defence of the Realm and Remains of the Day. I must admit, Defence of the Realm. I'm one. Of, I'm one of the guilty people that's allowed that film to be forgotten because it's not one I was. I'm aware of. So uh, I will be onto that right away. It sounds right up my street as well. Oh, I think you'd love it, based on what I, I based on our conversations and based on what I know about you. I think I would be amazed if you did not think Defence of the Realm is a truly great political thriller. The fact that you said the the the, the idea of a UK equivalent of Parallax View is enough for me to get to want to watch it to be honest with you that that already has me you had me at that well just it just gives me to say good luck with uh with the the back and forth you'd be willing boy where you get the book finished for next year um i'll put a thank link in the much. show notes to the art of the screen adaptation and that would be great thank you and it just said to me to say thank you very much for joining us on the britflix podcast thank you very much Stuart. a pleasure once again Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.